We've defined post-liberalism. Can, can we define integralism? I sure can. Inter- integralism, integralism, etc., is unlike post-liberalism, which is kind of obvious, uh, integralism, A, is not new, and B, has a, an interesting and long history. Uh, to try to encapsulate it, uh, the, the word first came up with the idea in, in the late 19th century, uh, in France, actually, with the idea that the Catholic faith should be integral to the state. Uh, in other words, within the milieu of common good, uh, the, the, the part of the common good that Catholics should be looking for was the salvation of the souls of the citizenry. So let, let me pull back for a second. Um, the very notion of the common good is foreign to most, most not all, uh, versions of liberalism that we know of, that, we've, that we're used to. The post-liberal says the common good includes much more than people just eating and not killing each other in their pursuit of pleasure. Mm-hmm. Rather, it means the acquisition of virtue. It means uh, human beings being able to uh, have the greatest possible access to the things that make life worth living. And that's everything from a decent education to high culture or folk culture, both, uh, to the built and uh, natural heritage, to all these things, the things that make men men. Uh, everything from modes of etiquette to uh, cuisine, to athletics, to uh, you name it, all that makes for a good and decent life. And of course, that goes beyond the individual. It also means strong families, it means strong communities. Mm -hmm. Uh, It means, we would say today, subsidiarity, not simply to prevent despotism, but because man does best as part of an interlocking uh, network of loyalties. Mm-hmm. So, it's I mean, just, these these are things which we might call just for uh, a quick label trans, transcendent values, right? Yeah, that'd be that'd be a good way to call them transcendent values. Now, for the for the French integralists of the late nineteenth century, uh, these included the Catholic faith. Uh, and moreover, because again, remember what, what the, view, the traditional view of the Catholic Church up until the 20th century was that the Church was necessary for salvation, the Church was the means of salvation, her sacraments, etc. The Catholic state had the obligation to assist the Church for, in, in terms, how do I put this? the role of the state being to work for the common good of its subjects and salvation being the highest good there is for the Catholic state assisting the church in a salvific mission became a part of the same effort as providing all this other stuff you see in other words the same impulse that required the state to facilitate the citizenry having access to good education and uh, good food uh, uh, good jobs 
it also meant helping them in having access to the saving truth of the Catholic faith. Now, the role of salvation was that of the church. But as I say, it was because of the common good of the citizens necessitating it that the state was obligated to assist the church. Now, that varied according to time and place. But the idea that the, uh, the Catholic faith was part of the common good was the specific earmark of the Catholic state. The integralists of the late 19th century saw this as being key. Uh, and this was true for Leo XIII. It was even true for Charles Maurras, who is he's, uh, credited, although he was not for most of his life a believing Catholic. He's credited with the idea of uh, in his so-called integral nationalism uh, of aiding the church simply because it was an essential part of French identity. Now, in and of itself, that's not really a good thing. You see, uh, you see the same failure for Catholicism in Russia and Spain and several theorists or orthodoxy in Russia. Yeah, it, it puts that, religion at the service of the, of the state. Well, worse than that, not just in the service of the state, but the service of, of the nation. In other words, Catholicism is only of value to the degree that reflects Ireland, Spain, France, or Russia. Whereas the truth is just the opposite. Mm -hmm. The Russia, France, Spain, Ireland are of value to the degree that they resemble the faith to the degree that they embody the faith. So Maras, you might say, had it backwards. It wasn't entirely wrong, but it was far from entirely right, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, I understand. So uh, in time, the name integralism uh, during, the, during the fight between the, uh, the modernists and the orthodox in the early 20th century, the more the most i don't want to say strident but the most uh zealous uh opponents of the modernists called themselves integral catholics or integralists uh, then after the overthrow of the portuguese monarchy you had the people there came up with what was called lusitanian integralism integralismo lusitano which was the same the same thing, these people called for a, a return to a modern version of the medieval Catholic state. That is, uh, the altar and throne, the church, the church basically laying down the ground rules for life, being the animating philosophy of the country and so forth, with a, a monarch who gets his legitimacy and his authority from the faith on the one hand and national tradition, on the other has sufficient power to help the uh, help the state do its job <laughs> uh, subsidiarity which is they would have said provincial liberties local liberties etc and solidarity that is to say an end to class conflict and class collaboration instead the idea of the different classes in society being not uh, enemies but members of the same family with an obligation to work together for the common good you notice we keep coming back to the common good. Yes. Uh, the faith 
is supposed to animate society for the common good. The king is supposed to have sufficient power and authority for the common good. Uh, subsidiarity, provincial liberties and all that for the sake of the common good. And lastly, but not leastly, solidarity, class collaboration for the sake of the common good. Well, that was integralism. And there were a lot of other isms that were connected to it. Corporatism, uh, guild socialism, distributism, etc. All of them took the same basic first principles as their jumping off points for analyzing the problem in their specific country or era. And, and uh, <clears throat> just in case the listeners are not acquainted with these terms, I do, do want to throw out that, that uh, guild socialism has nothing to do with socialism in the sense in which the term is used today. Yeah. Um, it, well, part of the problem is that the German social and the French social don't quite mean, they don't mean what we mean by socialist. Uh-huh. Yeah, so, I mean, a lot of people react to a word, and they don't know what it means. But the guild no, socialists were, 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 were all for private property, right? Yeah. So, yes, uh, in fact, it was the maintenance of private property and its widest possible distribution that gave distributism its name. Mm-hmm. Uh, but where all of these folk would speak of was the social use of property which is not the same thing as the socialist use. Yes, yes. The, uh, the social use of property meant that those with a great deal did have an obligation to help support the less fortunate. Um, now, how that would be done, the specifics, again, that varied from place to place and time to time. But the idea that the wealthy owed the poor and that the poor owed the wealthy you see, it's a symbiotic relationship. That was what was meant by the social use of property. That was meant, uh, guild socialism, quote unquote, like corporatism, called for the reorganization of the economy along, well, how do I put this? Every, every kind of uh, business in the state, from shoemaking to ironmongering to steel factories to mines, etc., are made up of different elements. All right? So we'll take the shoe business as one example. Uh, what do you have in the shoe business? Well, you've got independent cobblers who generally set the fashion for shoes. You've got the shoe factories. You've got the people and their owners. You've got the people who work in the shoe factories, labor. And, and then you've got the, uh, the retailers who sell those shoes. All right. Have we identified them? How do we identify them? Have we, have we identified them? We've got these players in the shoe business. Okay. The corporatist, the guild socialist idea was that rather than being in each other's throats, uh, the independents, the, uh, the owners, the laborers, and the salespeople should be organized along into an organization, into a group that would, uh, well, basically look after each other, a little bit like the medieval guilds, more than a little bit. That was the idea behind it. And it wouldn't pit labor versus management? No, quite the contrary. 
uh, labor and management would be uh, obligated, as it were, to look after each other's interests. Mm-hmm. So that in, in the capitalist model, the uh, as we've seen it anyway, uh, the uh, the owners, of course, strive to sell as much, sell to the public the most expensive shoes they can, and pay their workers as little as possible. Contrary wise, the workers want to make as much dough as they can and work as little as possible. The retailers, in turn, want to squeeze as much as they can out of the public and pay as little as they can to the factory owners. Well, this, uh, let's just say it had its drawbacks. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it, it created the industrial misery out of which arose Marxism, out of which arose Socialism, so, in that sense. Yeah, and these are the conditions that uh, Chesterton and Belloc and so forth were writing about. I mean, even Charles Dickens wrote about it in his fiction. Um, but these are the... Yeah, con- yeah and, and you, you've got to bear in mind that on the eve of World War One in England, for example, and uh, the great Dr. Halliday Sutherland uh, pointed this out, uh, the, the mobs, in the, the industrial mobs in Britain were knowingly sold tubercular milk uh, 